0: This is connected to Chicago
1: with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the
0: hell is going on?
1: Covering the big ideas. If
2: you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save a lot
0: The tough choices. Blackamole? No, I like Blackamolee. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box jury box, or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. Welcome to Connected to Chicago. I'm Nick Gale, in for the vacationing Bill Cameron this week. We jump right in with our guest, Henry Haupt, Downstate Press Secretary for Secretary of State Jesse White. Thanks, Henry, for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: So the latest news out of the Secretary of State's office is that uh, you're extending the expiration date for Illinois driver's licenses and ID cards to January 1st. I'm guessing this is kind of stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic, right? That is correct. Secretary White has extended driver's license and ID card expiration dates
1: until January 1 of 2022. So our residents do not necessarily have to rush out to a facility, uh, particularly if it's uh, if there's bad weather or if it's extremely hot, whether their uh, license is currently or expired or is expiring soon, the license and IDs will remain valid until January 1 of 2022. In the meantime, we strongly encourage residents to consider going to our website, www.cyberdriveillinois.com, and conducting business online instead of going to a facility and waiting in line. There's a number of transactions you can do uh, online with our office. You can renew your license plate sticker. You can obtain a duplicate driver's license or ID card if you lost yours. You can, if provided you're eligible, you can even renew your driver's license or ID card online.
0: But as far as the real ID goes, you have to come in with uh, the specific documents that that are needed, right? So, I mean, there is some relief here. The Department of Homeland Security is extending the the deadline through um, May of 2023. Uh, But you have to make an in-person appearance uh, for that type of a license, right? That is correct. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security requires anyone applying for a
1: real ID to visit uh, their home state's uh, driver's services uh, facility because the uh, public is required to bring in a number of documents that uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security mandates to apply for a real ID. Uh, Thus far, we've issued over 1.6 million real IDs to Uh, Illinoisans who want them. But I think it's important to note that, as you mentioned, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has extended the Real ID deadline nationally for all 50 states until May 3rd of 2023. So your current Illinois license or ID card will be accepted at airports um, until then.
0: There were a couple of stories out last week about some of the long lines at some of the uh, Secretary of State facilities. Um, I'm guessing, again, that COVID kind of plays into this. What's causing those long lines and what's the office trying to do to kind of uh, resolve that?
1: Yes, we are experiencing heavy customer volume at our driver services facilities. It is definitely stemming from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Although our office has been open throughout the majority of the pandemic, and in fact, for a long time, we were the only statewide office open and conducting face-to-face transactions with the public. There was still a, a large number of people who were concerned about coming out and perhaps contracting the virus and rightfully so so now that more and more people have been vaccinated and the cdc has relaxed protocols we're seeing an increase in influx in customers coming to our driver services facilities so a couple of things that we're doing uh first of which we've already done and that's extended the expiration dates until the end of the year so your license and id card will remain valid at least until january 1 of 2022 We are also um, not only urging people to go online to conduct business online, we're we're also going to expand the Safe Driver Renewal Program, and in so doing, we hope to do this later this summer, in so doing, we expect upwards of 500,000 additional Illinoisans will be able to renew their driver's license online. And basically the the main change we're going to make is in Illinois if you've utilized safe driver renewal your last cycle four years ago you would be required to come into a facility to renew so we would get a new photo for you we're going to relax that requirement and allow those people who used safe driver renewal to renew their license remotely four years ago to do so again provided that they've maintained a safe driving record. And again, That's this would ca- capture over 500,000 people, we expect.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it certainly sounds like it would take care of a lot of people who, uh, you know, would otherwise have to come in. Now, um, are all the facilities open? Are there a handful that are still closed? I know that the Thompson Center is open. That's the main one in Chicago.
1: No, they they are all open. Um, all of the the facilities throughout the state are open. We have uh, the vast majority of the facilities have been open throughout the pandemic. Uh, there were a handful that were closed. The J- James R. Thompson Center uh, facility was closed because the building itself was closed. But as you mentioned, that's reopened. Uh, Chicago West on Laramie and Lexington had been closed for a while because of sewer work that had shut down the, the roads in front of the facility. But that facility is open, and, and it, that is helpful because it allows our customers to visit you know any facility within their area, and that helps absorb uh, the the heavy customer volume we're seeing at each and every one of our facilities, particularly in the Chicagoland area.
0: Now, so with facilities back open, are there any rules? Are masks still required when entering the facilities? Are you guys uh, practicing social distancing, that kind of thing? So yes, during during the the height of the
1: pandemic, we we were open and we work closely with the Illinois Department of Public Health, and we're requiring six feet of social distancing. We required the wearing of masks. We uh, erected plexiglass at each of the counters and took a number of, of safety precautions to protect our customers and to protect our employees. Now that the CDC and the Illinois Department of Public Health have relaxed some of the protocols, we are We are saying if you are someone who has been vaccinated, you can wear a mask if you'd like to, but you don't need to. If you are someone who has not been vaccinated, we encourage you to wear a mask. And we are still doing some social distancing, but not six feet. It's more two to three feet, and we're still limiting the number of people in facilities at one time, but not quite as much as we were during the height of the pandemic, which frankly helps us serve more people, particularly that we have all of our stations open at the facilities. Uh, During the height of the pandemic, because of social distancing, we had every other counter space closed, and that, of course, would limit the number of people you can serve even though we were open, and that limitation has been
0: removed. It sounds like you guys weathered the pandemic uh, rather well compared to some of the other state agencies that uh, essentially were closed down. Um, how do you think you guys did? I, I'm
1: biased, <laughs> but I think we did well. I think Secretary White's leadership what was key. He, um, he, his number one priority was to protect the health and safety and well being of our customers and our employees. Given that he still recognized the importance of the services our office provides, you know even in the very beginning of, of the pandemic when everything was shutting down, Secretary White opened the CDL facilities because he recognized the importance of truck drivers and what they mean to the delivery products for individuals throughout the state and the country. So we actually had um, our CDL facilities open virtually the entire uh, length of the pandemic. And then after uh, just a short while about, in I believe it was in June of last year, we opened all of our driver services facilities on June 1st of last year and to serve the public in, in a manner that was safe and responsible. And I think Secretary White deserves credit for taking such a leadership role to provide the services uh, that we have been doing over the time uh, that we've been doing it. And And I would say that This is the first time in the history of a driver's license issuing agency nationwide that we have faced a pandemic of this nature. And so it has definitely presented challenges which all of the 50 states have never experienced before. And we have learned a lot and hopefully there's never another pandemic, but if there were, um, we would certainly be able to uh, provide our services.
0: I'd like to ask you about something that uh, wasn't really the Secretary of State's fault or the office's fault, but lawmakers down in Springfield somehow raised the cost of trailer plates by $100. And then they say, well, we didn't mean to do that. You know, it impacted a lot of folks with little utility trailers or boat trailers. And so they claimed it was a mistake, and they took action this last session uh, and are lowering that uh, fee. Uh do you know when that takes effect and what is going to be the cost for a, a small trailer?
1: Yes, the small trailer uh the new cost will take the new fee will take effect on January 1 of uh the upcoming year 2022 and the cost will go from $118 down to
0: $36. Okay. I'm
1: and you are yeah. correct. That was uh an initiative by the Illinois General Assembly. Our office does not have the authority to raise fees or lower fees by a penny. We, we charge the fees that are set by the General Assembly.
0: Kind of a wide-ranging interview here. This is Jesse White's last go-around, if you will, as Secretary of State. He's decided not to seek re-election. And I think he was uh, the biggest vote-getter here in the state for a while. And it's fair to say that um, it's because he really didn't come off as very political Uh, He did what a good office holder is supposed to do. He focuses on the job and fixes what's wrong with the system. Um, I think it's fair to say the office was left in pretty bad shape after George Ryan's tenure there. I want to ask you, what are some of the things that Jesse White has implemented over his term? I know there's a lot of changes that have been made, more efficiencies, uh, better customer service for sure. But any major changes for the better that, that you could name?
1: Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to to do to do this. I would like to highlight. Uh, remember when Secretary White first took office back in January of 1999, the Illinois Secretary of State's office was under a cloud of controversy and corruption uh, from the the previous administration. And so one of the very first initiatives he undertook was to change the culture of the office. And one of his first steps was to hire uh, Jim Burns as his inspector general. And he gave uh, Jim Burns and his staff the tools they needed and the independence they needed to work to change the, the culture of the office. Um, Secretary White set strict fundraising policies that prohibit employee contributions. Uh, he established a code of conduct for employees and uh, he even passed a law that made the Illinois uh, the Secretary of State Inspector General uh, permanent and with broad powers to root out corruption. And taking together as a whole, it really has, it really signaled a change in the office and has produced uh, a secretary of state now that has completely eliminated institutionalized corruption and is, is run at a much higher level and is one that hopefully our residents can be proud of. Um, Moving beyond that, I would say Secretary White has really accomplished a number of initiatives that improved road safety and saved lives we uh, one of the first things he did again back in like 2000 and 2001 was completely overhauling the truck driver licensing program and illinois we went from the worst truck driving licensing program in the nation to one of the best over the last twenty two and a half years Um, he implemented we were the second state in the country to implement a comprehensive uh, Uh, blood, uh, breath, alcohol, ignition interlock device program to combat drunk driving and BADES, as they're often called, work because they prevent cars from being driven by drunk drivers. Uh, Again, we were the second state to implement this program and we've seen drunk driving deaths drop by 40% as a result. And lastly, and certainly not least, um, Secretary White has always had a strong commitment toward kids and toward teens. And it was making him sick to his stomach to read articles, to hear on the news, to watch on the news the number of teen drivers that were being killed uh, in automobile crashes. And so he set out to completely change and overhaul and improve the teen driver program in Illinois. And Illinois' graduated driver licensing program is arguably the best in the nation. It's certainly one of the most comprehensive in all of its features. And we have seen teen driving deaths drop by 74%, which is An absolutely remarkable achievement in my mind and I I always think there's a number of young adults or or even older than young adults now that are alive today perhaps because of some of these very important reforms that Secretary White initiated and I don't know what could be a greater legacy than that Um, which leads me to one mother one more program that is near and dear to his heart both personally and professionally and that's the organ and tissue donor program. Before he was Secretary of State in the early 90s, his sister became sick, and there was, she needed a new kidney, and there was not a match in, in the family. Through the generosity of a, of a stranger, she received a kidney and a second chance at life, and she lived an additional 27 years because of that. Before he was Secretary of State, he became a champion of the organ and tissue donor program, and when he became elected that has been one of his main goals daily if you're around him. He continues to ask people if they've signed up to, be, uh, to, to register for the organ and tissue donor program. We've seen the registry grow so significantly. We're over 7.1 million Illinoisans have signed up to be um, organ donor, uh, members of the organ donor program. And he made a huge change back in 2006. We went from Uh, We we went to a first-person consent registry where you no longer had to have two people sign the back of your license, and then at the time of your passing, family would be consulted to uh, affirm that you may donate your, your organs. Uh, First-person consent was essentially a contract with the state. So if you wish to be an organ donor, your wishes would be granted. And the secretary did that because he had met with so many people who had lost loved ones, who at the, the high point of grief and the, the grief of, of, of losing their loved ones were asked, do you want your father, your mother, your husband, your daughter, your child's organs to be donated? And they would say no. And then later, they would say, that was not my decision to make. I would never have said no if I were asked. It was my loved one's decision to make, and they had wanted to be a donor. So we removed that stress from uh, the family of having to make that terribly difficult decision in such a grief-stricken moment. And as a result, we've, we've definitely contributed to uh, a a lot of of life-saving transplants and life-improving transplants, and I know Secretary White is very proud of that program, and and he's also proud of Illinoisans for their generosity in joining to be an organ donor.
0: He has had quite a storied life. Tell me a little bit about um, his time in college. Uh, He has a a pastor that's pretty well known. (laughs) Yes, he does.
1: So Secretary White, thank you, Nick, Secretary White was a terrific baseball and basketball player uh, in Chicago. Um, He played at Waller High School and set a number of scoring records, and his abilities did not go unnoticed. And as fate would have it, he um, went to Alabama State College in Montgomery, Alabama to play baseball and to play basketball. Which, by the way, he's still the all-time points leading scorer in Alabama State University history with over 1,600 points. Uh, While he was at school there playing baseball, basketball, and, and learning, he and his fraternity brother started attending a church, a small church in northern Montgomery. And the pastor, as luck would have it, was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is before he was nationally known. About this time, Secretary White is now in Montgomery, Alabama. Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus because of the, the horrific racism that existed in the South, and she was arrested for, for that. And Dr. King, at one of his lectures, said, uh, one of his sermons said, that the city fathers have come, had come to me to ask me to help desegregate the Montgomery. Uh, Uh, bus transit system would you help and he asked secretary would you help and the secretary of course accepted um, and he participated in the boycott the successful boycott of the uh, Montgomery transit system and one of the points he told me personally and I've heard him say before is this experience taught him the importance of perseverance of teamwork and the amazing power of nonviolent protests And he took those experiences from Dr. King and from these individuals that he he got to know in Montgomery, Alabama, and brought those back with him when he moved back to Chicago. Um, So it was it was uh, definitely an amazing experience. And and I know he said many times it was a challenge to go from Chicago where he could use any washroom he wanted or drink from any water fountain he wanted to go to Montgomery, Alabama, where he had to use designated water fountains and designated bathrooms.
0: And we know eventually a military career, a little bit of baseball in the mix there, but also the Jesse White tumblers, I think, is kind of a living legacy of his uh, I know that he probably plans to keep working with the tumblers after he's retired.
1: Absolutely, the tumblers are the tumblers mean so much to him. You know, he uh, in in 1959 he established. Well, he put on a gym show. In 1959, he was a great gymnast as a kid, and he was asked to put on a gym show, and he agreed to do it, and he drained his life. he drained his savings account to purchase matching uniforms for these young men and women that were going to participate in this singular gym show. And it was such a success that it essentially gave birth to the Jesse White Tumblers. He's had uh, over 18,500 young men and women go through the program. Uh, The program is designed to, to, it requires them to stay away from drugs and gangs and to maintain a a good uh, GPA in school. And it also provides additional guidance. Secretary White is, is remarkable with children. Um, they, just, they just take to him. Um, and he has helped guide all of these people, just thousands and thousands of young people, onto great careers, many of whom continue to give back, whether it's as teachers, uh, police officers, firefighters, lawyers, doctors. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I can't think of anyone that I've ever met that has touched so many people, and their ripple effect has impacted the entire country as Secretary White. And I think that's one of his enduring legacies. Um, Just someone who has always tried to help people, to give back, and to never treat someone with disrespect and to never uh, judge someone by their race or their religion.
0: Great insight uh, on Jesse White there and the Secretary of State's office. Henry Halp. thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity. Coming up next, the Reporter's Roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. And this is a reporter roundtable on this portion of Connected to Chicago. I'm joined by Lynn Sweet of the Chicago Sun-Times. Hello, Lynn. Hi, everyone. And Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Hi, Ray. Hey, 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 Nick. So I'm here in for Bill Cameron. You guys bear with me a little bit. It's been a long time since I've done this sort of thing. And another week, another alderman indicted. Alderman Kerry Austin charged with bribery over what looks like a kitchen remodel and a sump pump. <laughs> I don't know uh, if that's a big get, but um, certainly she's been under some scrutiny before. Ray, what do you think of uh, of another alderman now under the microscope?
3: Yeah, this is... a. Uh... It's kind of an interesting case because, just like you said, she was allegedly taking home improvement for an uh, exchange of her, her uh, support to uh, send a project to a developer, and this is uh, just uh, you know one more example of how the trades go on here with a, a city council that's seen, uh, you know what do we got now six aldermen in the last three years indicted and um, another one uh, accused of being uh, a heavy user of viagra so we've got a lot of of uh, rocking raucous uh, things going on in this city hall right now and um, this is just the latest in a long line.
0: Lynn, why do these politicians don't? Why don't they know better?
2: Uh, greed, hubris, uh, delusional—that uh, you know. So we have three. Just let that soak in, everyone. Three of the fifty members of the Chicago City Council are under indictment. So you would know, or should have known, even if your inclination is to do the wrong thing the idea that you could get away from it should be firmly planted in your head. Uh, And no one seems to have a real clever scheme here. I think the indictment of Alderman Patrick Thompson, the uh, grandson and nephew of Chicago mayors, does still kind of take the cake. You get a clout mortgage, you don't pay the interest on it, and then you have the chutzpah, so it is alleged, to take the mortgage interest deduction on your federal return that you never paid. So wouldn't you think that you maybe could get away with a little bit one time and there's just no end to it? And that is a sad thing, and I think that is a thing that has gone through uh, the careers of uh, Ray Long and I, that this kind of corruption is – the same these are all variations of the same kind of story
0: yeah ray you've been doing this for over 40 years haven't you i mean you've (laughs) you've probably seen a lot of this
3: yeah from city hall to the state government of course two governors while i was in springfield went to prison um it's all this as lynn said hutzpah the just they just think they're smarter than everybody else, and they're just—they just think they're slicker than everybody else, and they think they can get away with it. But they just haven't been able to. Maybe many, many more have gotten away and haven't gotten caught. But the point is, so many are getting caught that it's just a public embarrassment.
0: Yeah. So I guess it's going to be wait and see. I guess one of her uh, aides was also wrapped up in this too. So. It'll make for some interesting times uh, as we go forward, I guess. Um, I guess uh, Mayor Lightfoot was on Channel 11 here, WTTW in Chicago, uh, in an interview with Phil Ponce, saying that 99% of her criticism stems from being a black woman. Um, My question is, well, I think most of the criticism is because you're a person in power and you're the mayor and the buck stops with you or it should um ray what do you think about lightfoot did she put her foot in the mouth i think this is going to be um some campaign material on the other side or, or at least to whoever challenger is going to be
3: yeah it's an unusual statement uh to be made by somebody who is in such a, a high profile office there's been scrutiny in the mayor's office for eons here and there's been scrutiny of governors and there's scrutiny of legislators she is uh obviously getting a lot of scrutiny uh, as the first African-American gay woman, but she is mainly getting scrutiny here because of the things she does in her office. And she is measured by what she does, what she says and what she does uh, more than anything else.
0: Hey, Lynn, I wonder your perspective uh, in Washington. Do you do do you see this kind of this kind of uh, thing happening on Capitol Hill at all, do people try to use um, their race or the fact of their gender to try and, and and that's the reason why I'm getting dumped on all the time? Or is it a little more um, civil there in Washington?
2: Well, I, I don't I guess uh, maybe I could just reframe it. And uh, let me just go back. I'd rather the answer is it's sometimes. And certainly uh, there's uh, a lot of analysis about whether Kamala Harris, our vice president, uh, the first black, the first Asian American to uh, be vice president, the first female. If she gets more criticism about how she runs her office Mm. and turnover, than might have happened if uh, if she were a, a, a man who just has a style of. Uh, how he wanted to handle personnel. I want to go back to the Lightfoot question because I do observe a bit far. And she does get a lot of criticism. And when she says 99%, I think she has to factor in a few more percentage points for uh, some uh, self-inflicted wounds. But the the point she's making, I think has some sensibility in it, but there is a percentage in there that when, you know, when women are strong, no matter their race, uh, black women, and I think when somebody just uh, has an abrasive personality, it's hard So just think. Rahm Emanuel is one of the most famous abrasive personalities around the globe. He's in line to be an ambassador to Japan and people kind of shrug it off as a, uh, just part of his complex personality, and it's not a deal-breaker. Lori Lightfoot has abrasive personality, and uh, you, know, you, you, you would think someone put an anchor around her neck and you know, sending her out to the middle of Lake Michigan. So since we have back-to-back mares who, who are short, who are um, sometimes abrasive, or often abrasive and are very opinionated, I think we need to look no further than the experiences in the last few years to make a decision. So the answer I fall down on, yes, some of this may be attributed to her race and sex, but certainly not 99%.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I I guess I would just wonder, though, you know, we've had a female mayor before, of course, in Jane Byrne. We've had a black mayor before in Harold Washington, so now because it's a combination, it's, it's a double, uh, double hurdle to overcome then?
2: Well, the real problem is that you have some intractable, intractable problems in this city that are hard to impossible to solve. See, everyone who's listening, the issue isn't Mary Lightfoot's personality. The issue is that dozens of people are getting shot in Chicago every week the issue in Chicago is your property taxes. It's the quality of the schools. It's it's whether or not people are finding solutions to these problems. And if there's solutions to these problems, believe me, we wouldn't be talking about Lori Lightfoot's personality.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray, you've done a story here in the Chicago Sun-Times about uh, these text messages telling people that their driver's license are expiring and um, it's all turning out to be a phishing scam, but a lot of people are getting hit by this, right?
2: Okay. Yeah. First, I, raise, raise, I'm sure it's a great story. Yeah. But, uh, I'm a former sun
3: but uh, yeah, but, so, yeah, that was so, me. So if you want to, to send yeah. your
2: stories to us, right, <laughs> you know, let me know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Um, yeah, what, what we got here is a story that, uh, you know, I got hit with a text earlier this week, and it said, Uh, your driver's uh, license uh, needs to be updated or something to that effect, giving me the idea it needs to be renewed. And it said uh, from the Office of the Secretary of State and uh, it said from the Illinois Secretary of State with a small letter I, and it didn't have a state uh, link to click on. So there were red flags in it. I didn't click on it. And it came from a 708 number, which seemed to be, Unusual, but also the kind of biggest clue was I, I'm still like two years away from renewing my license too. So mm-hmm. there were several red flags, but uh, there had been some effort by the Secretary of State's office to uh, to warn people about this. But it has now burgeoned into such an inc- incredibly sweeping effort that um, everybody seems to be getting it. I talked to Dave Grecker. Uh, who is a spokesman for Secretary White, and he said, hey, uh, my wife got one uh, earlier this week. I I called an FBI guy in Springfield, and he said, I just got one. So there are um, signs that this is uh, proliferating, and it's gotten to the point where it's uh, the uh, biggest type of text scam that uh, White's office has seen aimed at drivers
0: are they telling people to report it just ignore it what any call to action when they get well, one of these texts
3: you can you can send it to their website uh or which is in my story at uh i don't want to miss say it here because i'd be doing it by memory but uh you could go to the story at, at com and obviously find it and um, they say, you know, uh, delete it. If you want to report it, uh, send a copy of it to their website, or you could call the Attorney General's identity uh, theft hotline too. Um, so these are these are things that are really uh, proliferating around uh, text phones. There's uh, text, and there's also some emails out there too that are that are hitting uh, people in their inbox.
0: They'll try to scam you any way they can, I guess, nowadays. Uh, Lynn, I noticed a story that you did um, talking about the January 6th Select Committee. And Liz Cheney, one of the Republicans, one of only, what, two, right, tapped uh, for this over Adam Kinzinger. And you kind of have some interesting uh, perspectives about, you know, Kinzinger, had he been tapped, had he not, and what happens now. and, And there's a congressional map involved. Why don't you tell us about that?
2: Thank you for asking. So, this week, there, you know, the House had a vote to create a select committee to investigate the January 6 attack on the Capitol. Uh, their, the House had successfully passed a measure for a bipartisan commission that died in the Senate, led uh, in, the, in the Republican by the Republicans in the Senate. So, the Democrats only had these two Republicans vote for it. The two most outspoken Trump critics, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. So Speaker Pelosi wanted to put a Republican. She she controls all the appointments, all 13. Five of them can be recommended by the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy. But she used a pick to pick Liz Cheney. And when I came upon the scene of uh, Liz Cheney and all the Democrats briefing reporters yesterday and the Capitol. It was something to behold. Anyway, Adam Kinzinger was the other name mentioned as being on it. And in a sense, it did Democrats a favor by this Cheney being picked. Why? Number one, uh, if she she's on shaky ground anyway for reelection, but Democrats are never going to pick up that seat. If Adam got that appointment, he might have. He just might have if he ran in a more Republican district. We have a remap, and he may use the physical area that he has now, but you could run from any place. You know, If you live in a state, you could just pick a district and run from it. But if he went to the most Republican turf, if he had joined that commission, he's already in hot water with a lot of the Trump wing of the party because of his approach to common sense and reality. He's against conspiracy theories. He's against election denial, and he's against lies. That doesn't sound remarkable, but when a Republican stakes out that territory, as Liz Cheney and Adam did, somehow it gets them in trouble. Anyway, on the commission, it would make it easier for a uh, Trumpite Republican to beat him in a primary. And then I think in Illinois, uh, it would be seen as not the best thing for the state. And if he picked a suburban Democratic district, then – the uh, crossover suburban Republicans and Democrats, and it would logically be maybe a Bill Foster, Lauren Underwood, or Sean Casson district. Uh, if he decided to run against them, and he would probably get through a primary, well, if he were on that commission, that would probably make it easier for him to be a Democrat. So Nancy, the last thing Nancy Pelosi needs to do right now is lose a Democratic seat. She's only Speaker because they have a four vote margin.
0: When does that remap uh, take place?
2: It's going to happen in a few months. There's different rules in doing a congressional map in terms of timing than in the state House and the state uh, Senate. So there's time to wait for the actual census numbers to come in. The primary has already been pushed back to June. So that map will be later this year.
0: Okay. Um, also some sad news this week is that Donald Rumsfeld died he was 88 years old Um, he was a graduate of New Trier he's you know hometown kid here Um, and I just wanted to get a little bit from both of you on uh, you know uh, what you what you knew of Don Rumsfeld over the years interactions Uh, how do you think he did um, in his many different hats that he wore over the years Ray we'll start with you
3: Well, I remember um, when he came into uh, San Diego for a Republican convention in the 90s, and uh, I believe it was 96, uh, Republican National Convention, and the Illinois congressional delegation and the whole Illinois Republican Party delegation just revered him. And he, at that time, still had a lot of, of pluses on his resume that uh had not really uh, he hadn't really gotten to the point where he made the kind of high profile or at least not as recently made uh the kind of high profile uh uh ventures into uh the middle east that made him that made that drew all the criticism lynn of course has covered him much more and she probably has a lot better analysis on this than me but uh he was uh well-known figure here in Illinois for many, many years. And uh, the uh, and he even uh, served, uh, I should say this, on Tribune's uh, Board of Directors, too. He was also uh, uh, CEO of uh, G.D. Searle for a while, uh, but um, he is, of course, known for his uh, position in uh, the, Cabinets of the President.
2: Well, I think let's just take note that he got his start, really, as an Illinois Congressman. He was first elected to this North Suburban Congressional District in 1962, when he was only 30 years old. He was reelected in 1964, 1966, and 1968, and uh, who was, I think it was John Porter, then, who, who followed him, and that district has moved around and been remapped uh, various ways, but he really is a son of the North Shore. And he actually had a little more, even though he came from Winnetka and went to New Trier, his and went to Princeton, he wasn't really uh, as much of the manner born as some of the other people who he came up with in the New Trier class of 1950. And I think those, those kind of uh, roots did influence him. Uh, one of the things he was famous for, especially in his second time at the Defense Department, is his, his Rumsfeld's notes, uh, his common sense approach uh, to to management, uh, kind of a steady hand. Now he was criticized a lot on the on the prosecution of the uh, of the uh, of the Iraq War. He is not without criticism of some of his uh, judgments, but he is a part of the Illinois Republican history that just really doesn't exist anymore. And I think that's, I don't have any particular significant memory I could dredge up right now, but he comes from the, you know, he, he, he kind of led the, um, you know, he, he, he was at the beginning of what became a, a Jim Thompson era, a Jim Edgar era, the era of the moderate Republicans uh which illinois at one time had so many of and right now we really have none
0: right fun fact for you he was captain of the football and wrestling teams when he was at princeton bet you didn't know that (laughs) so that'll do it for the round table this week thank you to lynn sweet from the chicago sun times ray long of the chicago tribune up next kim gordon on connected to chicago This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.
4: All University of Illinois campuses will welcome students back this fall, but there's one requirement, everyone must be vaccinated. Joining me today to talk about it is Robin Kaler, Associate Chancellor and Director of Public Affairs. Robin, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Thanks for having me. Glad you're with us. So tell me, why did the university make this decision to make it mandatory for all students to be vaccinated?
5: Well, we know that our students are um, going to have a little bit of uh, testing fatigue and vaccination, uh, obviously, we know is a great route to protecting yourself from COVID. And so uh, put those things together and, and vaccination requirements seem like the best approach to
4: take. And this applies to all of the U of I campuses, right? Just not Champaign-Urbana. banana.
5: You know, it does. I only work at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, so I don't know how it's being operationalized at the other universities. I can tell you about Urbana, though.
4: Okay. Okay, so students that, um, you know, may not want to go back to, to um, campus mm-hmm. this fall for whatever reason, they don't feel safe, they may have some other medical issues, do they have the option of still work, you know, studying remotely or a hybrid type of, um, type of hybrid, hybrid learning experience?
5: Well, um, you know, even before COVID, we had some courses that were online. So if, I mean, I'm sure you can put together a course schedule that has all online courses. Uh, there's no guarantee, though, that that's going to allow you to make the uh, exact amount of progress towards your degree that you would make if you came back to campus. Now, because our students overwhelmingly told us they wanted to go back to in-person classes.
4: Okay. And I know that you made the decision not to require, for, require it for faculty and staff. Why is that?
5: Well, our faculty and staff are already vaccinated at a pretty high level at the end of the semester, and we're pretty confident that that number is going to get even higher or is getting even higher over the summer. And we'll reevaluate as we go forward, but uh, I don't think it's going to be needed. And honestly, I think our students are going to be pretty well vaccinated by the time they come back. We were at just about 70 percent at the Urbana campus uh, of students were vaccinated before we left for the break. So um, we're not really hearing a lot of people saying, I don't want to participate in that. And again, the option if you uh, are not able to vaccinate, you uh, are afraid of the vaccination, whatever, um, you know, you continue testing. We've, our saliva test that we created at our campus has gotten us through this much of the um, pandemic, and we're confident it can get us the rest of the way home. So, uh, you know, you'd still have the ability to test uh, three or f- four times a week, whatever we uh, require of those who are not vaccinated, and you just need the mask. So. For those who are not vaccinated, the semester is going to look an awful lot like last semester did. For those who are vaccinated, uh, you know, it'll be no masks and no requirement to test anymore. You'll still and be allowed to if you want to, but you won't have to.
4: Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us today and appreciate all your knowledge about, about COVID and glad those kids will be able to be back on campus and have a normal college experience this year.
5: Well, we really appreciate it, and thank you for uh, for letting them know about what's going on. We, we are very grateful to you.
4: That's our show for this week. Thanks
3: to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News.
0: Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.